up, Chicago? Welcome to the Community Health Focus Hour. I'm your host, Dr. Ed McDonald, and you know our model. We keep it real, we keep it honest, and we keep it thorough. So I'm excited for the show that we have lined up today. We got some excellent guests. We are going to be talking about trauma and resiliency. So I, I really just want to get into it because this is an important topic, and it's a timely topic, okay? So right now... We are dealing with a lot of trauma. I mean, trauma is nothing new, but particularly, you know, trauma of a pandemic on top of it and the trauma from the pandemic itself, we have to talk about it. There's a lot of folks out here struggling. How do we stay resilient in these difficult times? So thankfully, I have some guests that's going to help us answer those questions. Okay, so let's get into it. I got my buddy Leif Elsmo, who's the executive director of the Office of Community Affairs for the Department of the Urban Health Initiative at the University of Chicago. Leif, are you on the line? I am. Thanks, Dr. McDonald. Appreciate being here. Okay. Thanks for coming on, man. It's always good to have you, good to talk to you. So I'm excited for, the, for our listeners to have the opportunity to get some of your insight. We also have in studio, uh, we have a couple of guests that have come into the studio to talk to you guys more or less in person, okay? So we have Brenda Thompson here in studio. She is the founder and CEO of the Branch Family Institute. Brenda, what's going on? Oh, not a thing, not a thing. I really appreciate you having us on today. Hey, thanks for coming in. So I, I, I can't wait to hear about the Branch Family Institute and all the good work that you've been doing. We also, in our studio, we have Christine Goggins. She is one of our violence recovery specialists at our violence recovery program at the Department of Urban Health Initiative uh, at the University of Chicago. So, Christine, thanks for coming on. How you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks oh. for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Okay. And last but not least, we have Krista Hamilton, Chief Executive Officer and Executive Director of Center for New Horizons. Krista, are you are you there? I am here. Good afternoon, everyone. So, thanks for coming on, Krista. How are you doing today? I'm excited to have this conversation. I'm doing well. Thank you. Okay. Let's get into it. So, trauma... It's not a secret. I mean, you turn on the news nowadays, you you see trauma just by watching the TV. And even if you're just watching, watching the local news, even national news. I mean, Chicago, we unfortunately are getting a reputation for being a city that has more than its fair share of trauma. And that's not new, unfortunately. Some of it is tension is warranted, some of it is not warranted, but... There are real people out here having real bad things happen to them. And and there's families that, you know, have been impacted by trauma. My family, a lot of, you know, even people at this table. There's so many people who have experienced it themselves or who have stories to, to tell who have been, you know, one step away from trauma. And for me as a physician, I deal with trauma almost on a daily basis. So that can happen in the form of when I see people who have, I'm a gastroenterologist, when I see people with chronic abdominal pain and constipation, sometimes trauma is where all those symptoms started. So it may be someone who was a victim of sexual violence, someone who had a loved one who experienced some trauma, maybe even died from that trauma. And then just working in the hospital, now that we're a level one trauma center, I feel like most of the practitioners in the hospital, in some ways, see more victims of trauma than what we did before we were a level one trauma center. So it, it is a timely topic. So, Leif, what's the university's engagement with community trauma and violence on the South Side? Are we doing anything outside of treating people, but are we actually getting involved in the community and really trying to figure out how to make a difference on a community level? 
Yeah, thanks, Dr. McDonald. So a bit of an overview here. I'm proud to be a part of, obviously, U Chicago Medicine, but also our Urban Health Initiative, which is our public and community health arm at U Chicago Medicine and focusing on health equity, right? Trauma resiliency is one of the priority health needs that we have, that we focus on in the community, and we do that in a number of ways. The biggest announcement, of course, is after a long community engagement process, we added adult health services in 2018, trauma services in 2018. And that was an important move that made us a comprehensive trauma center to treat all kinds of trauma. Not only did we have a burn unit and the, the helicopters, you see the ambulatory, we were pediatric trauma one and now adult trauma one in 2018. And that helps us see any number of patients who are impacted by trauma. And in this case, what we're talking about today is trauma by violence. And so this trauma resiliency work that we're doing in a number of ways engages community partners in that work too, like Branch Family Institute or Center for New Horizons, Centers for New Horizons, who you're going to hear from today. So that's important. We facilitate that work. And one of the key pieces when we launched adult services was our violence recovery program, which is a hospital-based violence intervention program that exists to reduce re-injury after someone's been impacted by violence and promote comprehensive recovery. And through that project, we've really touched a lot of lives. And we do that in partnership with the assets and organizations that are in the community to help wrap around individuals after a traumatic injury here through violence and help promote that recovery, which ultimately reduces violence in, in the, on the south side of Chicago. And for us, you know, this has been a very tough summer, Dr. McDonald, as you know, it's been increases in violence across the board. And we've seen a number of cases. Our team, our violence recovery team has grown through investment. And we're excited to talk about that today. The idea is to connect with people right after that trauma in, injury and as part of the clinical team, as part of the integrated team inside the hospital to help right away start that recovery process. And I'm excited to share more about that with you today. Oh, that sounds great. Now, can, can we talk a little bit about the Block Hassenfield Cassidin, uh, Kasdan Collaborative or the BHC? Is, uh, can someone shed some light on what that is? Yeah, I, I can take that too, Dr. McDonald. We so the Block Hostenfeld Kasdan Center Collaborative for Family Resilience was a result of a gift. We started our violence recovery program very lean. We only had two of our team inside, and now it's grown to add folks like Christine, who's on the phone today. Block Hostenfeld Kasdan Collaborative for Family Resilience focuses on uh, comprehensive recovery. It's family, kids and family in our both across the trauma center, actually, and that investment by the Ellen and Ronald Block Family Foundation and the Hassenfeld Family Foundation was a five-year gift, uh, $9.1 million, to help grow this initiative. We started it early on, like I said, lean, and now have grown to a team that works across the trauma center, including team members that are in child life. Uh, spiritual care. We have our Healing Hurt People Chicago program and the REACT program and our violence recovery specialists all working with kids and families to help promote that comprehensive recovery and holistic healing. And we're so appreciative of the Block family and the Hassenfeld family to help 
invest in this this important work on the south side of Chicago and to grow it so that we can help more families. That sounds amazing. Okay, let's shift gears. I want to get Christine, Krista, and Brenda in the conversation. So, Christine, you're a violence recovery specialist. Let's break down violence recovery. What, like, what, what, does, that, what does that mean? You, you know, is that physical therapy and rehab and, you know, being in the hospital and, you know, having the surgeons do further surgeries and make sure people physically recover? Or is it deeper than that? I think it's deeper than that. We alongside medical staff. And our work begins when the patients arrive to the trauma center. And what we do is when they come to the trauma center, we, are, we start by identifying who the patient is. We're talking to EMS. We're talking to CPD. We're talking to CFD to try to see what was the scene like, what's happening, because that goes directly into us assessing for re-injury risk. So we're immediately getting to work with our patients we also work with their families. So when the families arrive, when loved ones arrive after the patient has been injured, we sit the patients, that, well, we vet the families first, and then we sit them down in the family consultation room. Immediately, they want to know what's going on with my loved one. Are they okay? What's happening? And so we're letting them know that we're here as a support. We're going to get them all the information that they need. And so what we try to do is facilitate a medical update, which is getting either the attending uh, trauma surgeon that worked with that patient or the resident to give a medical update to the family so that they can know what's medically going on with the patient. Are they stable? If they need to go to surgery or, you know, what's next with their medical care. Mm -hmm. If they need to go to surgery, we're also walking the family over to where the uh, surgery reception desk is and helping them to get registered that way so that they can get updates. So we're just literally meeting all of these needs. If they need tissue because they're crying, you know, if they have a religious, you know, faith base, we're getting them linked with the uh, chaplain so that, you know, they know that there's a lot of people here that will support you because your loved one has been through this traumatic experience and you all need things and so we're here. If the patient is woke, we're also working with the patient, too, trying to see if they have any uh, safety risk. And if they do, we're linking them right there in the trauma bay. Like, I've made calls to outreach services while we were there in the trauma bay, yeah. while the, tra- the trauma surgeons were getting them stable. Gotcha. So, like, we're meeting those needs immediately. And so that's the crisis intervention. And then we also do case management with our patients, which is from the time that they arrive to the hospital, during their inpatient stay and when they leave, we're identifying those social determinants that they have, whether it be things like employment needs, uh, housing needs, food insecurity, okay. all of those things. And we're helping them get linked to those resources that they need. So and of course, the patient is an you know, they advocate for themselves about what they want to work on immediately, and we go from there. So those are the two things that we try to do is crisis intervention and then case management. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then are these services provided 24-7? Yes. So, so say we, someone comes in, unfortunately, 2 in the morning, mm-hmm. and they're a trauma victim. Mm-hmm. Is this really just – are these services just doing regular business hours? Because we no. know trauma – is not doing regular business hours all the time. Right. Trauma is not on our time. Um, So we do, we try to have our staff there 24 hours a day. If it's not a violence recovery specialist that's there, then the we have trauma chaplains too that are there. And so, yes, our patients do talk to somebody from the trauma team that can help them get linked with services 24 hours. Okay. Yeah, the block, uh, the block, 
Hassenfeld, Kasdan, dollars helped us increase our team to go around the clock. So that's that's a really important aspect, as you pointed out, of this investment. So we're deeply appreciative and now able to work around the clock and support kids, families, uh, and recovery. Gotcha, gotcha. So Brenda, Krista, let's talk about community collaboration. Okay. okay. So, you know, we spent some time talking about the services, and, and we're going to go on break, and we're going to bring you guys in, okay? But let's go on break first. <laughs> All right, all right. Welcome back. We're talking about trauma and resiliency. So this is the Community Health Focus Hour. We have an excellent show going on right now. Listeners, if you're out there and you have some questions and some comments, please, by all means, call in 773-591-1690. I'll repeat, 773-591-1690. Okay, so we're talking about violence, trauma, recovery, resilience, and also community collaboration. So, Brenda, Krista, why is community collaboration important when it comes to recovering from trauma? Is it important? I mean, should should the hospitals, should we just be doing this stuff on our own? Or should a community, should, you know, community organizations just be out there on their own? Or should we work together? Uh, if so, why? And how can we work together better? Well, thank you for asking. Community collaboration is extremely important because once the trauma, the crisis has subsided, it's really important that uh, people have a, a soft place to land. Yeah. Uh, we know in our community there's a lot of stigma and distrust of institutions. I hear you. And so once people are discharged, particularly in African-American community, and uh, in black and brown and other black and brown communities, it's important that they're discharged to folks who look like them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so because people are experiencing trauma at multiple levels in terms of homelessness, in terms of financial problems and medical issues, uh, there is a lot of work that needs to be done, a lot of collaboration that needs to happen between the hospital and the community service organizations. Yeah. Uh, many times people don't have phones, they have voicemails not set up, so it's critical that we work collaboratively with the hospital as well as other organizations. Mm-hmm. I hear that. So, Krista, what about you? Yeah, so I um, have to agree with Brenda, so... It's critical. There's no way for one to do the job well without the other. So it's amazing to have staples of the community, such as University of Chicago, that is going beyond the the walls of the hospital to reach out to organizations like Centers for New Horizons. The reality is a lot of the clients that I serve end up in the trauma center now. They end up at the hospital. So because we're able to work in great partnership, I'm able to be a hot handout. I have a few examples of how this has been extremely successful as we have been in partnership over the last couple of years. But individuals that are gun violence victims, we're able to go into their homes. We're able to help them find employment, help them find housing resources after they have been a patient at the hospital. And then with that constant communication with the violence recovery specialists, we're able to get successful outcomes. So I think it's critically important um, that we work hand in hand if we want to really see success for individuals that are coming through those doors. Yeah, so that sounds amazing. And and you, you mentioned Center for New Horizons. Can you shed some light exactly on what the Center for New Horizons is? And, and also, Absolutely. I also want Brenda to talk about the Branch Family Institute, too. 
So the Center to New Horizons, we're a social service agency. We are headquartered in Bronzeville. We're 49 years old, turning 50 next year. And we serve about 6,000 um, residents of Chicago each year, pre-K to gray, which means we have early Head Start programs. We have youth development, adult family services, counseling, workforce development, and senior services. And for 49 years, we've worked in communities that are underserved, under-resourced. But the last five or six years, we realized that trauma was braided throughout all of our program service areas, which is why we are taking the lead in, in our community to really tackle this in a very intentional way. So those are um, overall, we service the entire city of Chicago, but we do have a, a focus area in the greater Bronzeville community. Okay. And where are you guys located in Bronzeville? Uh, we are, our headquarters is at 41st and King Drive. Okay. Okay. Good stuff. Not too far from the hospital. Now, what about the Branch Family Institute? Okay, well, the Brand Family Institute has been around for more than 20 years. Uh, we have two offices. One is uh, at 11 South Western Avenue in Beverly Morgan Park. We also have an office in the South Loop uh, in Delano Court. The Branch Family Institute is named as such because uh, it was founded by myself and my daughter, Dr. Nakia Thompson, and my niece, uh, Jasmika Cook. Branch is our family name. It was founded in honor of my mother, Eddie Mae Branch Carter, who's around and kicking now. And essentially, our mission is to strengthen families and communities by providing quality, culturally relevant services to underserved populations. Uh, Branch provides individual family and group counseling. We also offer training for interns from all of the major universities who are majoring in social work, psychology, and other related fields. We offer both uh, in-office and community-based services, at least prior to COVID. Now, uh, 80% of our services are uh, provided uh, through telehealth as a result of COVID. We have partnerships with several organizations. We're in WINGS, which is a domestic violence shelter. We are in a coalition with the Universal Family Connection that provides services for violence prevention. We also have a collaboration with Kids Above All, which was formerly Child Serve, and Mother and Child Alliances, which, again, was formerly PACP. Gotcha, gotcha. So, I mean, that all, that's one, a fascinating story in terms of organization really starting with your family. So I mm-hmm. think that's beautiful. But mm-hmm. how did you get involved in social services to begin with? And maybe even for you also, Christine, like what got you involved with doing some of this work? I always like to hear everyone's origin story. Well, I can tell you my, my, my story, uh, probably as a senior men- men- a member of the panel, I was, I'm a lifelong of Chicagoan on the south side, 38th and Lake Park. Uh, my mother was a single mom of uh, six kids mm-hmm. and on public aid from the south. And she, when she had to apply for public aid, she was really treated very badly. And I think as a kid watching that, you know, it was hard to watch your mother be disrespected by institutions. Yeah. And so it was at that point that the seed was planted in order to make sure that our people are treated well with respect and dignity. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't even know what a therapist was. I didn't know what... Uh, the helping profession was. But what I did know is that it was really important for me to help our people. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. What about you, Christine? 
So I got into anti-gun violence work when I was 17 years old. The day after my 17th birthday, my one of my best friends, Blair Holt, was killed. And from that, I mean, just immediately after his death, I knew that I had to do something. Like, it just it ricocheted my entire life. Yeah. So not only did it change, like, what I wanted to do as far as my career, but I knew I had to do something with those feelings. And I just kind of, I, I didn't want any other person to go through what I was going through. Yeah. Like, people my age losing a friend or, you know, I it, it just broke my heart to see his parents just so you know devastated by this and so i just threw myself into advocacy basically so i started with the illinois campaign to prevent gun violence and i worked with them for a couple of years and then blair's family started an organization in his name and so i just helped them you know create that organization and work with that organization and then i worked with other activists and in the city just you know throughout my time and so i was really doing that in my free time yeah. But last year, one of my friends from high school, uh, he was aware that I lost Blair in 2007. And so he told me I work for, you know, University of Chicago, the violence recovery program and they're hiring. And so I was like, oh, OK, you know, that that's cool. But even though I've been doing this work since I was 17, I was just like, oh, my goodness, can I do that? And so he was like, no, I think you'll be a great fit. And so I interviewed. I you know, had a tour and everything, and I just, I loved it. So I've been there ever since. And so now I've just bridged what I used to do in my free time to now what I do for work. And it's just been the most rewarding thing. Wow. So, I, I mean, I, one, I, I think that's a beautiful story in terms of figuring out a way to turn a tragedy into, you know, how, how do you learn from the tragedy and also how to use that as a tool to help others and how to use that uh, horrible experience to inspire you to help prevent other people from having the same experience and then figuring out how to convert your advocacy into your actual work and have it be one and the same that's very impressive and it's very important and uh, I applaud you for everything that you're doing. Thank you. So you you know with with the the trauma and the violence what, what else should we be doing? Are there other things, you know, that we can improve upon in terms of working with the community and, and really building that tight, that strong relationship between a hospital as an institution and the community members? Like, you know, what are ideas where we can make this, this, this a little bit better in order to help people not only recover, but even get to the point where we can really figure out ways to prevent some of the violence, and so that, the violence that's happening out here in these streets? Any yeah, thoughts? I think that was Krista, Dr. McDonald, and I, I think we're going to have a perfect dovetail here. Uh, you know, the large part of what we're talking about doing here through the Block Hostenfeldcast and the collaborative is, and I'll, I'll shorten that, shorthand is the BHC collaborative is what we talk about here. We're, we're in, investing in community organizations. Part of these this funding is capacity building in our ecosystem, as we call it for not only recovery, but prevention, too. You heard Krista and Brenda talk about the work that they do to help people recover. There's also a lot of elements of prevention in that, too. So having a talented team like Christine, you know, who has lived experience is is what our violence recovery team is, and then our partners. Krista is talking about the work that Centers for Family, um, the Center for Horizons does, that works on employment and so many other things. We have to focus on that too. And our team is working with the city, with the police, with um, streets and sanitation, which 
street outreach, a whole number of groups to try and prevent violence, too, and invest in programs that are long-term community-building initiatives. So the whole idea here is, yes, recovery and resilience. That's the idea of it. But we have to be active in the community-building spaces, too. And we are. Because of organizations like Krista's, they received a grant through the BHC Collaborative, and we're just deeply appreciative to be working closely with organizations because people don't, they leave the hospital, right? Dr. McDonald, they go home sometimes to situations where that violence occurred. And we want to make sure that we're wrapping around folks as they go back into their lived experiences. So Chris, I'll let you pick it up from there. I just wanted to add that in. Um, no, I think that was perfect. And as a perfect segue, and I think people need to know that trauma shows up different on everyone. Um, people respond to trauma so differently. So having people that are working with individuals that have been um, severely traumatized, making sure that they're trained properly so they can be able to navigate them through whatever they need to get to those steps um, for recovery. So some of the things at centers, um, you know, we make sure that our staff are trauma-informed, which means they are dealing with people, meeting them where they are, meeting them, um, dealing with them through the trauma that they have. We're not making assumptions of how you should respond, how you should act. But we are doing things to help them um, manage and, and change the way they respond. So we, we practice cognitive behavioral therapy at the, at the organization, and that is how people change how they behave and they respond to things, to situations, which is an ongoing process. So I think ensuring that people understand that people are responding the best way they know how in many cases. And that's where we pick that up and we help them move forward. The, the BHC helped us fund a street outreach worker, and that's how we're going to help with prevention for trauma. So we've been doing a lot of the recovery efforts, but now we are in the prevention space. So now we can get in front of when things are happening in the community. And then also we're here to be hands-on with education, so community education, um, so they'll know where the resources are in the community. We're doing some individual and group counseling through the BAC um, grant funding. So being flexible as organizations in the community, not always doing things the way you've always done them if we want to have a different outcome. Yeah. One of the things I realized I neglected to talk about uh, is primary and secondary trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that Carl, Dr. Carl Bell, who was a trailblazer yeah. in looking at... Rest uh, in power, Brother Bell. Yeah, and looking at trauma before it was even talked about locally. But one of the programs we have is After the Storm, which is a supervised visitation and safe exchange for victims of domestic violence and their families. And what we have discovered is that it's really important. I think we've talked about prevention. It's really important to try to interrupt the cycle of violence in the family, as well as looking at a community violence. And yeah. so I think organizations like ours have a creative kind of programming to address those issues. I mean, it makes sense to me. And, uh, and it really sounds like from what everyone is saying that when it comes to not only resiliency but also prevention, uh, there's a lot of social determinants that play a role. Mm -hmm. So, you know, trauma, trauma it, it may not just be an isolated event. 
uh, there's probably a backstory to a lot of traumas that we're seeing, and that backstory involves a lot of social issues and even societal inequities, inequalities. I think someone mentioned food insecurity. I think maybe it was you. Mm-hmm. So food insecurity, what, what are your thoughts? And, and, and the reason why I ask that, I'm a gastroenterologist who's mm-hmm. a chef who I deal with a lot of food insecurity. A lot of my patients, unfortunately, have food insecurity. So it's a factor that not only can play a role in trauma, but it also can play a role in just health outcomes in general. So if you have someone who has diabetes but they're food insecure, right. you got to address that food insecurity if you really want to be serious about addressing the diabetes and high blood pressure and so on and so forth. So what do you think about not only food insecurity, and, and even in your experience? I mean, you've been talking to families after, uh, you know, in, in the middle of a tragedy. What have you seen has been some of the social issues that have popped up in just some of those conversations? There are so many. Like, as she mentioned, um, domestic violence. Domestic yeah. violence shows up a lot. We have a lot of domestic violence patients, whether it's male or female. Okay. Um, so you got the, the, some males. Yes, yes. It is just, it's crazy. And then the food insecurity that does come up, unemployment, of course, the safety, interpersonal violence, being at risk for being re-injured, that happens a lot. We have a lot of patients who this, they they're it's not their first time being injured. Yeah. You know, we have people that have been injured two, three times, shot two, three times, stabbed two, three times. It is just, you know, so many different things. And then these things don't even just happen in as singular events. Like some of these people are experiencing multiple social determinants at one time. Yeah. And so it has just been you have to, like, really hold space for the patient so that they can trust you enough to tell you everything that's going on with them so that you can help, you know, let them know what services you offer and so that they can say, hey, this is what I need. You know, I need this, this, and this. And so it has just been crazy just to see how many needs that people have. And because you start off with the conversation of what happened to you, and then you think you see all of these other things could have possibly led up to that event happening. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like you were going to jump in. No, actually, I'm fine. Yeah. So, you know, I'll say, Dr. McDonald, too, you'd be surprised what a, you know, we have a feed first pantry and we work with some other folks to have a pantry inside the hospital. You'd be surprised what a bag of groceries can do yeah. uh, to, to help some of the broader things going on in someone's life. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds simple, but it's, it's not right. It's one of the many things happening, forces going on in people's lives. We try to help with that, too. Now, do you think the health providers, and so, you know, their physicians are also involved in caring for trauma victims and in maybe even providing care for the family. Do you think there's ways we could step up and actually better collaborate with violence recovery specialists or even community organizations? Because oftentimes when someone comes in with a trauma, it it seems like we just focus on the trauma and -hmm. the physical aspect Mm -hmm. and the backstory, the social determinants. They're not really reflected in the medical record to some Mm -hmm. degree. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even, you know, because of uh, the way we handle trauma and we also don't want people to be uh, victimized again, sometimes trauma victims can be depersonalized. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just even the way we label them in the electronic medical record is just Mm -hmm. very depersonalized. Mm -hmm. And I oftentimes, I mean, I provide nutrition support to trauma victims and and I walk in the room. I'm, I mean, I'm African American from the South Side, so my conversation with uh, some of my patients may be a little bit different than everybody else's. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, if I see someone being discharged, I'm like, "Bruh, are you okay?" Uh, but we're gonna go on break, and then we're gonna answer that. Question. All right, all right, all right. So, 
We're coming back. We're talking about trauma. We're talking about resilience and recovery. Uh, listeners, if you're out there and you want to call in, please call 773-591-1690. And it looks like we have a couple of listeners. So, Mary, are you on the line? Yeah. Mary, thanks. Thank for, you. Thank, thank you thank for calling in. How are you doing, Mary? And I love the name Mary. Good- Mary Mary's a classic, <laughs> a very classy name. Yes. Absolutely. So my question is about people accessing the services because they sound amazing, but I'm thinking that they only get engaged if there's a trauma like that takes them to the hospital. What about people who are just walking around with old trauma? They've been shot before this program was established, but they know they're not right. How do they get help? And and maybe do you have to be on the south side or can you live in another part of town to get services? What's actually available for people? Okay. That, Mary, that's a very woke, woke question. So we have some woke listeners out there. What, what I will say is a community organization, again, I think as our community has become more educated about mental health services, there are organizations that are available to them. The problem is, as always, is usually a funding issue in terms of uh, organizations like ours receiving funding to provide services for many people, not only who have food insecurity, financial insecurities, uh, all other type of insecurities, but there are services available out there in the community. It's it's usually a matter of people recognizing that they have been traumatized and then uh, secondly having the resources to access those services. Gotcha. Yeah, you don't have to be a current victim of trauma from the hospital referral. So we have a diversity of programming um, that we are able to almost fit anyone into some type of programming that is funded so we can provide them with the resources and support that they need. And if we cannot do it at centers, then we will connect you to an organization that will be able to support you. Okay, that's great. Anybody else? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll respond to Dr. McDonald. Thanks, Mary, for the question. I think working with organizations like Branch Family Institute, like Centers for New Horizons, we work with a number of or- other organizations, too, where you can access help or information around trauma, you know, without coming to the trauma center. We work with groups like Bright Star Community Outreach, where there's a trauma helpline. That's 833-TURN. One, two, three. That's a helpline. But then there's groups like Centers for New Horizons where you can get assistance any day, right? So we do, we do hope that people are finding their way to the partners we have, whether that's something like the, like Branch or Center for New Horizons or Friend Health where there's HRDI is part of that group where you can get. We know that mental health is part of this too, Dr. McDonald, that you know, seeking help along the way if you're experiencing trauma or stress or these kinds of things. As you pointed out before, this builds up over time, and social services are part of that too. So if if we can connect people before they ever come to the emergency department or trauma unit, we would hope to do that, and that's why we, through the BHC Collaborative, look at investing in the ecosystem and services on the south side so that we can connect and folks can 
find us, I will say by the end of the show, sort of where, where people can find some additional information on that, Mary. So those are all great points. And, you know, to our listeners out there, so we may have some listeners who've experienced trauma, who, you know, are really just trying to figure out, like, what should they do? And how do you, how do you recover? What are your options? Like, where should you go? So, so maybe, you know, anyone can shed some light to that, for that listener who, you know, may be a current, currently experiencing domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we know domestic violence is, it happens all the time. I mean, I, the majority of my patients, I ask them about their personal history, medical history and whatnot, domestic violence and assault and all that stuff comes up. And I feel like it does not get the attention that it deserves. It so for our listeners out there, what advice do, you, do we have for them and how can we get them connected? We actually partner with uh, Family Rescue, who is, they have been a godsend for me. I refer all of my domestic violence patients over there. But if they don't want to be linked to a specific organization right away, they can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and they have a, a plethora of resources that they can offer to that person if they need um like a shelter if they need like case management services they can call that hotline and they'll be able to direct them let them know you know what in in their area like what's available to them in their area so i would say if they don't want to be linked to one specific organization then to call the the hotline and you know get specific information from there gotcha Brenda, you got any insights on that? Yeah, I, I think the the most important thing is safety first. Yeah. And so I think you want to always look at what resources and support systems do you have available to you in your immediate surroundings. And then certainly, of course, if you can reach out to an organization that can help you develop safety planning, I think, as uh, Christine said, look at resources of the National Helpline, all of those are resources in order to help you try to make a decision about your current situation. Okay. And Krista, any thoughts? Yeah, I would just echo what Brenda and Christine said. So um, centers, we are not like certified for domestic violence trauma, so we do refer out to partners as well. But I think the national hotline is um, the best way to go. Or you could connect with one of your local community-based organizations, and I'm sure the majority in the city of Chicago, they partner with someone that they will refer you to, and it will be a, a very quick and immediate handoff. Okay. So I'm going to shift gears. I'm going to ask a controversial question, okay? So, you know, we are in the middle of a political season right now. Uh, you, can't, you can't hide from it. You can't escape it. So we might as, well, might as well face it head on. So we have people running for president, okay? Donald Trump, Joe Biden. If uh, Joe Biden, if you're listening, because <laughs> you know Joe Biden listens to the show. Uh, if you're listening, what advice or what demands or requests will we have for any of these common candidates when it comes to violence, recovery? And, you know, if you had a megaphone to talk to any of them, what would you say, you know, the country should be doing to help with this? Anybody can jump in on that. I think for me it's important that they pour the resources into the community where the resources are needed. You know, there's been a whole movement about defunding the police, and I think essentially what folks are saying is that we need to look at how those dollars are being spent 
you know, more on the prevention end, and, and I'm not being anti-police, yeah. but that we need to look at how dollars are being spent. We know that this country doesn't have unlimited resources, but uh, I think what we have been doing is not working. Mm-hmm. And 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 we need to look at those underserved communities uh, and look at the disinvestment that has been done in those underserved communities and reallocate some of those funds. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, so yeah, we need to look at outcomes. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to Brenda's point, which is an excellent one, Dr. McDonald, that this is an equity issue, right? I mean irrespective of political party, right? Forget, I go, I would say this to any, any candidate and certainly people sitting in office and there have been champions like Senator Durbin and others who really, we do need allocation of resources around trauma, around mental health, around social services and social determinants around education and other things, right? This is, this is a longstanding issue when you look at COVID and how it's imp- disproportionately impacted communities. We can build up the systems that we have, great organizations that are out there working on these issues to help support people and families. And that's what it's about. And so taking an election out of it just generally, this kind of support is important for our communities. And, and I would I would just echo that to anyone who would listen. And I want it to not just be a political platform. Yeah. I want the the things that you're saying to actually be put into action. Mm-hmm. There have been so many laws introduced and they need to be passed. Like common sense gun legislation has been a conversation for far too long and these laws need to get passed. And then also, just like they said, allocating that money towards it would, would help as well. Like, the street outreach organizations that we work with could use more money. We could use more money, you know. So I think putting money towards it will help as well. And, you know, making it the the issue that it is, like the, yeah, so that's what I think. No, I, I, I agree with you. And, I, I, I mean, I, I think we have spent billions of dollars on uh, this quote-unquote being tough on crime without really even defining what that should mean and what that really means. Um, but I, I, I hope that uh, in the future when we start talking about allocation funds, like we can expand that definition to include you know, resiliency, to include mental health resources, and also for hospitals like ourselves where we're really trying to interact with the community as, in a way to find some solutions and also prevention. But uh, we're going to close out soon. So where can everybody be found? Let's go. So. Krista, I mean, sorry, Christine, give me give me one last line. You said where can we be found? Yeah. Like email address? Uh, whatever information you want people to know. Uh, sure. If I you, mean, don't get personal numbers and uh-huh. stuff like that. Oh, no, I was going to give out my work email. It's christine.goggins at uchospitals.edu. All right. So, Brenda. You can reach us at the Branch Family Institute. Our phone number is 773-238-1100. Leif. Uh, yeah, thanks, Dr. McDonald. UChicagoMedicine.org. If you need more information on the Block Hossenfeld Kasdan Collaborative or Violence Recovery, and my email is leif.elsmo at uchospitals.edu. Krista. Thank you for having me on the show today. I can be reached at www.cnh.org. Email address is christah at cnh.org. Phone number 773-373-5700. All right. I'm Dr. Ed McDonald. You can reach me at www.thedocskitchen.com.
Take care.